Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of PALTC issues that you wrestle with every day. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. All right, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to FAMDA's Journal Club, um, another session that we're very excited about. Um, before we start and I introduce our host, just want to let everyone know that we are very grateful for all the efforts that you have been doing around getting education out in regards to the vaccinations. And um, I just want to start with just applauding the fact that as a country, we're over 147 million um, um, vaccinations being uh, given when I looked at the CDC site. So that was very exciting. We also know that we have over 30 million cases and over 5,500,000 deaths. And unfortunately, what we've been seeing in the, these last few days is that the trend is climbing. We have seen um, in certain states some increases in uh, in the COVID cases, both um, in the inpatient and ICU settings. For the seven-day positivity um, rates with the United States, we are at 7.49%. And as of yesterday, we had 69, over 69,000 um, new cases being reported for um, the 30th. So that is rather alarming to see so many um, new cases. We do know that in Florida, we had a spring break and we have been seeing this trend go up. Um, Florida has over 2 million cases now with a seven day positivity rate of 8.89%. Our new cases as of Monday was over 5,000. So we are pretty much a very, I think, all aware and alert to the fact that we are seeing some trends, just as we've started seeing really remarkable daily um, numbers of vaccinations. So as we think about that, we wanted to bring in Dr. Christian Bergman into our um, Journal Club conversation because he has been a an amazing leader throughout this um, this pandemic, um, really pushing us forward to think about different policies and um, different positions. And he's also the newly um, formed um, state-based public policy and advocacy subcommittee for AMDA, he's their their chair. He also chairs the AMDA State Task Force, which, um, you know, if if you want to, talk about a robust meeting, (laughs) that would be one of those meetings. So I really wanted um, him to share with us how to be better advocates uh, in in the post-acute long-term care setting from wherever we're sitting. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Christian to get us started. Thank you, Diane. And um, thank you, the Florida chapter of AMDA. AMDA, thank you for inviting me to participate in today's discussion. Uh, certainly appreciate it and um, humbled by the introduction. I am uh, probably not the expert in the room. There are many people with lots of experience, but I hope to share my ex- uh, experience here and hope it will be helpful for you all. So um, without further ado, we uh, will go ahead and get started. Um, Just briefly, this session will try to uh, wrap up in about 30 minutes, 35 minutes. Uh, If you think of questions during the the session, please, you can chat them in and we can uh, tackle the questions towards the end. Um, If you're on a phone, obviously, you can just jot down your questions so you don't forget about them as we go through the presentation. Would like to reserve 20 to 25 minutes for an open discussion at the end. So thank you. Uh, My name is Christian Bergman. I'm an assistant professor here at VCU in Richmond, Virginia. I have no relevant financial disclosures. I work for VCU and the opinions are my own. Um, 
as you all uh, saw in the handouts that were sent out and uh, communications, uh, these are the learning objectives. Uh, we hope to be able to understand uh, better methods uh, and ways of engaging in ag advocacy. Uh, we want everybody to have tools necessary to effectively engage. You don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time. Rely on your network and previous experiences. Um, we want to distinguish between advocacy and lobbying. That's an important uh, financial uh, and IRS related uh, topic. Want to uh, briefly touch on how to interact with media and lastly make the point that uh, you need to network. It's hard to do on your own. So um, briefly, just a couple of quick comments. You know, why advocate? So if we think about post-acute and long-term care, uh, we sometimes think of perhaps an ideal environment being something in blue here, where you have the resident at the center of the spheres of influence or however you want to uh, label this diagram. But the resident should be the largest circle, and it should be that you know we have various stakeholders who are trying to help that resident in many regards. And um, everybody has their own role. Um, and if you take a step back and, and look at how that environment looks currently, uh, these spheres may not be very well balanced uh, and depends obviously on whose perspective you have and so forth. But historically, we know that the um, industry ownership, uh, the providers um, have theoretically uh, a little bit of a stronger voice, uh, as well as the regulatory agencies, whether it's state-based or federal, um, tend to have a lot to say. And I think uh, the, re the answer to the question, why advocate? It might be to help um, shed light on some of these different viewpoints. Uh, not saying that any of the ones currently reflected are wrong, but they may not provide the full picture to people who are trying to help that resident in the middle. So each of these spheres need to have their own advocacy uh, and voice. And you also need to advocate so that you can get a seat at the table. You know, the short answer is that um, if you're not invited or you're not uh, thought about or you're not on that Rolodex of, uh, you know, people to call, or if, the, if it's difficult for people to get a hold of you, then you're likely not to get a seat at the table. And, and this conversation is going to be important because this takes years. You know, developing and getting invited to sit on certain things is, is not something that happens in a matter of weeks or even months. Uh, this is years of developing uh, relationships within your state and your locality. Um, and so it would be um, unrealistic for us to automatically assume that we will be invited unless we have those ongoing relationships. And this is, I'll touch on this a little bit later, but then this is one of the key um, thoughts behind this new subcommittee that we're going to be, uh, that we launched yesterday, um, is to be able to foster some of these relationships and focus on the five to 10 year plan. Um, so. So I'll briefly start off our conversation by <clears throat> just reflecting on a second over the last 11, 12 months on my journey and uh, why I'm here talking to you all today. So uh, obviously here in the state of Virginia, uh, like many other states, uh, March of 2020 uh, was very difficult for nursing homes. Um, many states started to see outbreaks. Uh, we started to see this new viral disease. There was a lot of questions floating around. And um, many governor's offices across the country started to get people together. So here in Virginia, um, in early uh, April, there were a series of uh, email exchanges, phone numbers, uh, people calling to try to get the right people. Uh, the governor announced very quickly that he would form this COVID-19 task force. And uh, just to reflect on this initial conversation, um, this task force ended up with over 130 members um, and other task forces that were formed around the same time tended to be smaller. And uh, this was a challenge because the, the question, it seemed to be to get on that task force, you had to know somebody who knew somebody else. And so that was very challenging. And we were able to, across Virginia, get about five or six uh, medical directors and clinicians um, 
access to this task force and, and be present on it. And so that initial networking and communications relied on prior networking and prior connections of various people. Um, so that uh, is an important component that if this was to happen again, you know, having these relationships available um, would allow us to quickly put in place people that we thought could provide some insight. So uh, having been put in this situation and uh, you know asked to join this task force, I reached out to AMDA because I've uh, been part of this for six years now and I'm uh, considered a professional home with a lot of good colleagues. And I had asked um, AMDA leadership if we could establish um, a collaboration or a work group ad hoc meeting uh, where we could talk about uh, and share opportunities. I envisioned that there were probably many AMDA members who were being placed in uh, key positions across the country to try to interact with uh, healthcare leaders around COVID-19 in nursing homes. And so we um, started up this committee. The first meeting was actually May 1st, 2020. Uh, and I just pulled this goal and uh, initial from our first agenda. So the goal of the subcommittee was to help foster a collaborative effort uh, within AMDA to quickly share best practices uh, with key stakeholders in public policy advocacy, strategic planning and communication. Um, and you see some of the other topics that we discussed that very first uh, uh, meeting. So what ended up happening with this Friday call is that we went on to have uh, weekly calls uh, and have still have weekly calls every Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. East Coast time. And we now um, have representation all across the country. We have about 28 states represented on that call. And these are some of the topics and things that we have been talking about throughout the last year. And, and you see that it started out in May and June on kind of a crash course on public policy. Uh, we developed a public policy playbook that had, uh, I'll show you in a second, but it should be readily available and if anybody wants a copy of it we can certainly get it to you all but it includes simple things like statistics around paltc it includes uh you know, sample diagrams of what a department of health might be organized like um, it includes guidance on talking to media news reporters um, and uh, um, cover letters to governor's offices we have sample op-eds in there there's a number of uh uh, key pieces that you might uh, want to look at if you are starting fresh. Uh, we went on to focus, you know, every one or two months or so, we would kind of revisit uh, the focus of the meeting. And, and these were some of the key topics that we had highlighted over time, you know, visitation, testing, uh, vaccine education, most recently strike teams and monoclonal antibodies over the last few months. And um, these conversations, traditionally are it's a very packed agenda it's one hour once a week but um, we typically run over five minutes ten minutes every single week because there's a variety of topics people uh, raise acute concerns perhaps uh, their state is uh, getting overwhelmed with an outbreak and they're looking for guidance on how to talk to reporters and explain. Um, we have had folks uh, try to talk about and share best practices across various states. And so um, it's been very productive and kind of a collaborative learning uh, environment. This is our current uh, makeup. Uh, we um, have, like I said, 28 states about, I think we're maybe 62 members now, um, but fairly good representation across the country. Um, these are some of the things that we have been working on um, over time and various position statements have come out of this task force and made it up to the AMDA leadership and has then uh, went on to uh, be shared externally. So uh, we're proud of some of that work. Uh, this was the public policy playbook that I alluded to before. Um, these There are seven different chapters. Uh, again, it was done early in the uh, pandemic in May and June. And so we had at that time some nursing home hero stories and positive stories that people could reflect on if they were speaking to reporters or media. And it has multiple other uh, important uh, chapters that you could look at. In terms of what we have learned so far, uh, you know, best practices, uh, 
the key point is really number one here. You know, it's really hard to just say that, you know, Florida is the same as New York, which is the same as Ohio. That is not true. Uh, every state is unique and, you know, every state has a history of regulations, relationships across the PLTC, including healthcare systems, uh, long-term care facilities, even assisted living facilities. There's a lot of nuances to these relationships and the public perception of what long-term care looks like is different uh, across regions or even just cities within a state. And so, uh, it's really important to know your state and uh, engage in relationships. And if you're new to this, you need to really don't make any assumptions, ask open-ended questions. Um, really, uh, it says refrain from negative comments, but if you are just starting out or you're trying to establish yourself, you need to just not publicly or privately share any negative comments initially about other people or comments. You can be provocative or suggest ideas, but uh, don't put anybody down or, you know, throw people under the bus or anything like that. That is a quick way out of this business. They're not interested in working with you if you do that. Uh, keep track of key contacts. You need to uh, develop your own Rolodex, so to speak. Um, you need to figure out who, uh, you know, staff on these different trade associations, uh, nonprofit organizations, even staffers at um, yeah, key legislators, whether state or federal, uh, you need to know who they are. And lastly, uh, try to refrain from personal perspectives there while they're important they don't give you as strong of a voice uh, if you can tie it back to an anonymous resident or a, a, another clinician reflecting a conversation gives you a little bit more um, authority i would say or, or um, you know you you need to really you're not just yourself you may reflect on your career and your experiences but uh, legislators want to know the collective uh, opinion, and so if you can bring in opinions from other people or organize uh, work groups where you might provide access to multiple clinicians, that would be a more effective way of getting the message across. So a couple of quick comments about advocacy versus lobbying, and I do like these two quotes. This is from the National Association of County and City Health Officials. Uh, without advocacy, we wouldn't have seatbelt laws, safe drinking water, or, and nutrition labeling. All lobbying contains some form of advocacy, but not all advocacy is lobbying. Um, so what do we mean by that? The diagram on the right helps explain a little bit, but more specifically, uh, Health advocacy is the, the process by which actions of an individual groups attempt to bring about social and organizational change on the behalf of a particular health goal, program, interest, or population. Lobbying, more specifically, is any attempt to influence specific legislation. And then there is grassroots lobbying, which I did not defer, define these terms, by the way. The references are listed below, been for more than two decades now. Grassroots lobbying is any attempt to influence the public or segment of the public to take action on a specific legislation. And electioneering uh, is actually defined, it's a real term, any attempt to influence an election. Um, so um, these terms are really important to understand because they have certain uh, legal consequences. And I'm just gonna reflect on a second on this paper, which, um, Happy to provide a copy to anybody that wants it. The reference is listed below. It is uh, very well written. Um, it deals with, it was essentially a uh, interview where they interviewed a number of people involved in health education advocacy and lobbying. And um, I'm just gonna touch on a couple of key pieces here, but when they asked about perceived barriers, why do you not get involved in advocacy? Uh, these were some of the things listed, lack of time, I have other priorities, frustration, lack of money, um, policymakers' attitudes, I uh, can't be involved because of employment, um, lack of support to get the work done, and, and so forth. So just want to touch on briefly uh, one that we commonly see or I've heard over the last year, the fear of employment-related repercussions. Um, so. This is a direct quote above from this paper. And uh, I recognize, I'm not naive to this, each employer makes their own uh, decisions, but just wanna provide one perspective. 
so an individual acting as a private citizen may engage in health advocacy, including lobbying, grassroots lobbying, and or electioneering. It is your right as a citizen to vote to advocate based on your own political paradigms. However, some employers may be displeased if you publicly advocate for a position anti-ethical to the interests of the agency, organization, and business. So th this is obvious, right? I mean, if you are, uh, just use one example for a second, you know, if you are, um, let's say I work for a company that sells alcohol, I'll just put that out there because it's relatively easy. I probably should not go and advocate for something that goes against the interest of my business if I am directly employed in a key position within that business. It's a conflict of interest. So um, that can be said same for nursing home and, and other industries. And I do think that you should, um, and I'll have some guidelines here in the next slide or two on specific um, comments. There are two uh, key distinctions here, government employees, um, by federal rules, typically, um, if you look at state rules, it might be slightly different, but federal employees are prohibited from engaging in advocacy efforts during work time or using government resources. And that's key. That is true. Government resources includes the, your work time, computer, uh, email, um, all of the normal things, but it is not, uh, you're not prohibited from doing it at all. It's just you can't use the time and resources that are, you are being paid for. The second part is nonprofit and individuals representing nonprofit organizations. You must be aware of the state and federal rules related to direct lobbying, grassroots lobbying, and electioneering because it might, um, you might forfeit your designation as a nonprofit if you uh, don't follow the IRS rules and uh, reporting requirements of lobbying activity. If you are no longer representing yourself, but a nonprofit organization, for instance. So um, here are some key tips, uh, some of them taken out of this article, some uh, my own uh, take on it. So in terms of the employee-employer relationship, um, you need to emphasize with every presentation or interaction with, um, so this is specifically about lobbying now. So if you are contacting a legislator and you're asking for a particular position on a piece of legislation, uh, or you are trying to influence an election, you are uh, supporting one candidate, for instance, the electioneering, if you are as a, a private citizen supporting a candidate running for re-election and you uh, use your official title. You know, I'm a doctor in, in nursing homes and I support so-and-so that you are attempting to influence an election. And so in that case, uh, you need to be very clear that your opinions are personal, not those of your employer. You need to not use your official title. You can say that I'm a doctor, but I you know, I can't say I'm an assistant professor at VCU. Um, be mindful that you are speaking as a citizen and a constituent. Do not cross the line where you start to then say that, uh, you know, I represent so-and-so. If you are writing written communication, use personal letterhead, personal email, email accounts, your home computer, if you want to try to uh, keep this um, as professional as possible. And lastly, you know, keep your employer informed. Seems obvious, but... Um, it's very important your employer does not want to be surprised about your uh, advocacy efforts. Um, and the second part of this slide is about if you are a member of a professional association, you need to uh, understand the IRS and state rules, and you need to uh, make sure that you are speaking to the executive director, advocacy committee chair, or anyone else involved and that you supply any written material that you are using for advocacy on behalf of that organization. And this is probably more important for people that are involved in leadership roles and nonprofits. Um, but if you are saying, you know, I represent the state chapter of AMDA in Virginia, you want to be careful about that. If you use that language in direct communication with legislators, uh, that could be perceived as lobbying, and if that's not disclosed for the nonprofit, uh, you could get in trouble with that. So, and now a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. 
at U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Here are some strategies that also come out of a, a similar, the similar paper, actually. It's the second part of this uh, organization. Uh, in terms of the left-hand side, so voting, um, behavior, electioneering, direct lobbying, they give some examples on what's good, better, and best. And I think this is a good reference. I'm not gonna touch on all of these, but uh, all the points I mentioned previously regarding direct lobbying and grassroots lobbying uh, are important to take into consideration. Um, so, and sorry, last comment before I go on. Um, Read your rules regarding registering as a lobbyist within your state or federal agency. So if you get money, you get paid as being a representative for a nonprofit organization or as a uh, chair of a public policy committee or something like that, if you are getting paid for it, that uh, could directly mean that you are a lobbyist and then you need to register. Here in Virginia, for instance, um, as long as my primary employment contract is not, uh, does not include lobbying or advocacy, and as long as I am uh, reimbursed less than $500 per year for any activities related to this, uh, I do not have to register as a lobbyist as long as I am uh, uh, speaking on behalf of myself and that my uh, activities are cleared by um, my employer, which is a different relationship. But as far as the state cares, it's, it's about the Virginia code. So uh, transitioning for a second and then we'll wrap up here in a few minutes to uh, uh, take some questions. Uh, feel free to chat in the box if you have anything that comes up or anything you want to talk about. So uh, two slides here. This is from our uh, AMDA uh, advocacy presentation at the annual conference just a few minutes ago, I, uh, a few weeks ago, excuse me. I presented with Dr. Daniel uh, Hamowitz and Dr. Michael Wasserman. And Daniel Hamowitz covered writing an op-ed and just I summarized some of his key points. Uh, so why you're writing it, you need to be passionate about a subject, you're providing education, think about your audience and what do you want out of it? Are you looking for change? Who would want to publish it? Lots of places. We uh, have seen you know, everything from local newspapers, national newspapers, uh, special magazines, uh, blogs, um, even professional scientific publications will take op-ed. So there's lots of opportunities. Each one of those is a little bit nuanced in terms of uh, the style of writing and so forth, but important to understand. Uh, what can I write about? Anything. Um, if you want to be in the news media or magazines or blogs, it needs to be very timely and uh, prompt uh, in terms of getting it uh, relevant to the current news cycle. So you need to be aware of that. And then lastly, how to write just um, seek advice. There are many people in your professional network who would be willing to review a draft uh, and understand that any piece that you write goes through a series of edits. Uh, and for an op-ed in the newspaper, the turnaround is pretty quick, usually within five to seven days. And so you need to get through about four drafts, four to five drafts, uh, to be able to successfully put something through. So it happens pretty quickly, but can be done. Um, Dr. Michael Wasserman talked about his uh, experience interacting with media and uh, these are some of the key points from here. 
uh, be capable of telling your message in different ways, I think is important. You need to have key sound bites, you know, uh, and don't be afraid to be a little bit provocative, but you need to be consistent in your messaging. So you can be uh, upset, show emotion, uh, be provocative, but you don't want to uh, flip flop your position. You don't want to start by saying one thing, change to something else. Uh, you want to be consistent in your message and uh, yeah. And if you are ever on television, and this is good probably for a phone interview as well, you always want to thank the reporter and interviewer by name. Um, you know, you're really uh, trying to establish yourself as a reputable source for them. And so uh, thanking them and, and answering their questions politely is, is important. <clears throat> a couple of quick things I'm going to talk about related to kind of next steps and how you can um, do advocacy or get started if you haven't yet or continuing. Um, you can obviously join a coalition within PALTC, either on your state level, um, regional level. Um, and I wouldn't exclude here, you know, organizations outside of AMDA as well. So um, the American uh, Medical Association, AMA, usually has uh, medical associations that are heavily involved in uh, physician representation and, and uh, not clear that all across the country they understand nursing home world and so you want to be active there so that in case an issue comes up um, that is related to nursing homes you might be one of their physician or clinician contacts that uh, they might reach to for a comment or to get involved. Uh, we have lots of AMDA committees that are involved. Uh, there's obviously the steering public policy and then there's our new uh, state-based uh, advocacy group. Um, policymakers, you need to start developing these relationships if you don't already have them. Help to write uh, state and national bills. This is uh, interesting. Uh, if you get an opportunity to work directly with staffers engaged in uh, most commonly federal practice, uh, you might be able to actually uh, suggest pieces of legislation with their edits. And this is part of our role on the new state-based policy and advocacy is we are tracking certain state bills across the country that might be uh, relevant that members can share with their own state's representation. Um, yeah, and lastly, you know, phone a friend, uh, expand your network outside of the nursing home. It's really important to be part of the community. Um, so a um, couple of quick things on the AMDA website, if you have not already seen this. And um, I know the Florida chapter, you guys have a public policy committee as well. So I'm sure there are uh, resources on there as well. But in terms of national AMDA, um, it's up here on the public policy. Um, there's an advocacy in action um, section where you can write a letter, you can track legislation, um, you can find your elected officials. Um, it's pretty helpful to begin to build your network. Um, there is a policy snapshot that is uh, released uh, every couple of weeks about a specific issue and topic. And so they do tend to get buried sometimes in our emails, but they are on this website uh, under public policy the PLTC policy snapshot. And uh, lastly, this is our uh, new subcommittee. We are divided into 10 regions across the country. Um, we have, I think we're at 36, 37 members. We have a chair and a vice chair. And um, we are trying to, uh, you know, advocate, build a network, share resources, and um, we are in it for the long haul. You know, I should say that we are continuing our Friday calls, the COVID task force for now. This is a subcommittee that's uh, more dealt with, uh, we're dealing with the three to five year plan on grassroots advocacy and, and how to get people engaged at the local and regional level. So um, it's a long-term plan. So that's uh, all I have and uh, thank you all for time and I, Happy to stick around to help answer some questions or dialogue. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Christian. I do have um, a question. I'm glad you showed that uh, state-based policy and advocacy, the new subcommittee that you're chairing. I wanted to know how we, it, we should be engaging with you and that um, subcommittee because the question and the thought that keeps coming to my mind is, 
how do we apply what we have learned um, throughout this pandemic about engaging our state legislators and, and the media and everything else? So if you could uh, maybe share with us what, what you, how, how we as an organization can work closely with that committee. Yeah, uh, thanks for bringing that up. And um, the way this was envisioned, you know, if you think about this for a second, you know, we've long had the public policy steering committee uh, at AMDA. Uh, it's been around for decades. And uh, that tends to follow, you know, discuss mainly federal policy. You know, there's a group of people there, they rotate on and off. Um, what we were looking for something different here is that, you know, how can you, um, how can you provide a bi-directional flow of policy information between the states back up to the federal and also federal advocacy efforts uh, and translate it down to the state? And so we thought about how, how could we do this across the entire country? It's very challenging. We have 50 states. We have um, many uh, AMDA affiliates who are organized differently. Some are stronger. Um, have already well-established advocacy efforts and some are uh, non-existent. And so we decided that we would divide it up into 10 regions. Each of these regions would be responsible for uh, uh, coordinating and communicating um, issues uh, raised from those individual states. And so what's going to emerge, I think, over the next three to six months as this gets organized is that um, these representatives on this um, subcommittee will be in touch with um, state affiliates and those that have established public policy to understand what the issues are at the state, how we can help advocate and, and track issues. You know, if uh, 10 states are struggling with, let's just say staffing standards, since that's a hot topic currently, you know, is there a way for those 10 states to uh, get together? Is there a common, you know, three items that we can share? Um, and if it becomes so prominent and it's not currently addressed at the federal level, is there a way to um, use our federal contacts to push to, and elevate the issue up to the federal level, if that's appropriate? Um, and so I think we're, we're trying to be more attuned to what's happening at the state level. Um, and an important caveat here is that we do not want to replace any state uh, advocacy efforts who are currently successful and doing well, right? You know, we have a number of affiliates across the country who have established relationships and they're really leading the way. And so they might be able to teach others uh, on these calls on, you know, how, how to do that. And so, I think what you'll see in the next few months is more uh, collaboration. People are going to be reaching out for uh, comments, um, and I hope that we can kind of uh, foster this kind of grassroots efforts. But um, it, it will be bi-directional from the state up to the federal and federal down to the state if necessary, but um, they're essentially independent. Yeah. I think um, this the, one of those things, and I thank you for that that, that answer. That one of the things that have um, I, I know from where I sit at Florida that has been challenging is we once upon a time thought that we had really strong relationships that I think um, other state chapters um, probably have felt the same way, but uh, this pandemic has tested a lot of those um, relationships. Um, I've seen where we have had some physicians get in trouble because of their comments on social media. Can you speak to how we should be engaging with um, the various social media platforms and advocacy? I'm just, I'm very curious to know your um, thoughts. So, you know, I'll just, um, it's very challenging to sometimes hold back emotions. I'll just say that, you know, I think that as we have seen this on the front lines, you know, in the nursing homes, it has been incredibly frustrating for many of us sometimes to not see action or action delayed by several weeks or months. Um, and 
I will just share that's frustrating. However, um, if you want to be uh, engaged in, in the public, you know, not, we're not talking about a closed boardroom where, you know, the doors close and the conversations remain private. If you are engaging in public advocacy and trying to make a, your position known, uh, try to stick with uh, positions that are um, more in the center of the general kind of consensus in, in your state or region currently. You know, if you are new to this and you don't have, you know, ongoing relationships, or even if you have ongoing relationships, um, getting your emotions in the middle of this and trying to advocate and be passionate, um, while, you know, I appreciate that, uh, not everybody is going to appreciate that. And if you are not a governor or, you know, uh, executive leader, um, you will quickly be uh, kindly told to, to just disappear. And so uh, you got to be careful about how your message is perceived by other people. Um, and so social media has been very good. And I think that social media can be used to promote general um, comments, you know, I think, uh, but I, I would refrain from using social media to attack or comment specifically on individuals, organizations, or uh, a state uh, health department, for instance. You know, I could, I could say something like, um, you know, antigen testing in asymptomatic uh, individuals is an off-label use. And then I can tag, you know, CMS, uh, you know, whoever I want to, if I think that's, uh, that's indicated. Um, but I probably shouldn't say, uh, you know, gosh, I think CMS is so dumb because they're putting this policy in place and sending out all this antigen. That's a very direct attack on CMS. And so you could make your position known that you don't support it, but you don't need to specifically go after and attack individuals. That's kind of a very aggressive use of social media that I think we should refrain from. Um, it might get you attention, it might get you on a, a TV show, but that's a very short-term gain. It's not gonna help you in your long-term advocacy efforts. So uh, my recommendation with social media is to uh, make your position known, make them known in a neutral fashion, and don't attack individuals or healthcare associations. You just don't know you probably don't have the full story. You don't know the other side. So, um, yeah. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, I, I have to feel like we need an emotional intelligence handbook for how to engage on social media because we've seen some things and I, I've heard about a couple of physicians who uh, lost their jobs because of things that they've um, shared on that platform. Let me ask, you know, I know that in thinking about where we're at currently with um, vaccinations and, and the, the, the possible entering a new spike, surge, wave, whatever we're going to call it, what should we be doing right now in, in looking at how to be better advocates uh, across our states? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I mean, I think we've been saying this ever since the vaccine data started coming out in November. You know, initially we were pushing to prioritize long-term care staff and residents. And if you all remember back to December, there was a big debate about whether um, long-term care residents would even be in 1A or 1B. And the final FDA committee for the Pfizer approval and subsequently Moderna, there was one or two individuals in the ACIP who voted no. They said that it should be healthcare workers only and not long-term care residents. Now, we were able to reverse that and we were able to include uh, long-term care residents. I think that was a huge win for multiple people who were involved in those discussions and providing feedback. I think what's become apparent um, was that the people that designed the long-term care uh, pharmacy program for long-term care um, at the CDC and, and federal level, I don't think they appreciated the um, heterogeneity of the post-acute long-term care population. Uh, they had thought of, 
about this population as a static population and that there would be no issues with vaccine hesitancy. They thought they could just roll into these facilities, you know, uh, uh, armed with doses of vaccine, finish it in three clinics and be out. And this population would all be vaccinated and they could move on to other people. Um, I think it's become our role in the last uh, three months or so to constantly remind healthcare workers that, uh, sorry, state policymakers that this is a very heterogeneous population that includes a large proportion of skilled nursing patients who come in and out, some of which uh, are under 65 and may not be eligible for the vaccine out in the broader community, but because of their uh, admission to a skilled nursing facility, they all of a sudden became eligible. Uh, this has become a controversial issue with uh, two doses. You administer one dose in the vaccine, they, they recover from their hip fracture, whatever sent them in, they go home and all of a sudden, they somehow can't get a hold of the second dose because they're told that they're not, they don't qualify. Um, so I think it's become our uh, role to advocate and to continue to push and make sure that health officials understand that uh, this is a uh, important population and that if we don't have an ongoing vaccination strategy, that we will quickly lose immunity in this uh, heterogeneous population. There will be new admissions, discharges, and if there's not an ongoing emphasis, uh, we will go down from 80 to 70 to 60 to 50% uh, you know, vaccination rates. And so that, that needs to be considered. Um, and I think this could be done in a delicate manner. I think that um, you need to just provide an ever-present uh, uh, voice and uh, many of us have struggled even here in Virginia we have not been able to get any clinicians on the vaccine advisory panel that's been an ongoing problem so the states all design how their allocation schemes are going to go out and we can't get any uh, a lot of them are relying on vaccine advisory panels who were designed prior to COVID-19 and predominantly designed around uh, data tracking and pediatric populations and you know other high risk uh, been very very little voice from nursing homes so we have been trying to figure out who those individuals are and to plead to them directly you know if they are uh, you know a strong advocate they've had a 10-year presence with the health department around vaccines you know reaching out to them directly and saying hey you know just wanted to uh, could I talk to you for a minute about our problems in nursing homes and uh, just want you to be aware of the situation. Um, it has not worked to ask specifically for membership in these advisory groups. It's just not, um, some of them are, you know, appointed by certain people and it's just become too political to ask for membership or representation or voting rights in some of these state advocacy uh, groups and so we have had more success is if we uh, try to identify who's on those panels and then uh, use our network to try to get a brief conversation you know five or ten minute conversation um, yeah so Christian if we wanted to have you or someone from your subcommittee speak to our um, larger membership as a whole at our conference would you be willing to do that that was one question <laughs> and then um a follow-up question was you know in in looking at the current um the, as you mentioned the current um policy and the fact that we have uh, people moving in and out of our facilities skilled people are we currently writing something around vaccinating people prior to them being discharged to the skilled nursing setting? Yeah, there is a uh, position statement already out there, should be on the AMDA website about, uh, it was the uh, ASCAP and uh, AMDA joint statement on mm -hmm. <clears throat> vaccination strategies. And it clearly makes uh, two large points. One is you know, all long-term care pharmacies should be approved as vaccination providers in the CDC program so that they can help with the um, uh, 
distribution, the supply essentially of how to navigate it and get it to nursing homes. Uh, that's one clear point. The second was that um, we should remain uh, and have an ongoing vaccination strategy uh, both federally and perhaps at the state level. And I think we're starting to see that. Um, I will be much easier once we get the J&J &J vaccine out there because of the storage requirements and one dose and all of those. And I uh, just last week here in Virginia, at least, um, there was, we're starting some pilot programs in a few hospitals where they're going to be giving the J&J &J vaccine to nursing home discharges prior to them leaving. And I think you'll see more and more innovative programs like that. The states have a very strong push to increase as many vaccinations as possible. And if they can use uh, large hospitals and pharmacies to help do that, I think you'll see more and more of that. Um, I think that the issue that comes up from a nursing home realm is um, if you are administering the vaccine, are you legally the vaccine provider? That's been a question that's come up. And second, uh, you know, are you, if you're vaccinating staff, do you have access to their insurance information and, and all of that? That's been uh, a challenging part. Um, you know, uh, CVS and Walgreens did collect the insurance information, but if you had no insurance, you could check the box and say, no, it's not required to get the vaccine, but uh, technically, you know, we, they've been asking everybody to collect that information. And so um, we'll, we'll see what ends up happening with that. I, I think by middle of April, certainly by May 1st, um, I think you'll see a lot of the ongoing planning come to fruition. And I hope that um, most long-term care facilities by May 1st will have the ability to uh, send vaccine doses to, the farm, to their uh, nursing homes. Okay, thank you. And I, I guess the the, I'm I'm really interested in that the program that you you guys are doing in Virginia. I don't know it. I don't know if anyone on the call knows if we're doing, the the, hospital giving a dose prior to discharge to the nursing home, but um to answer that question more for what was happening in Florida, we are giving the the J A J the Johnson and Johnson vaccine to home patients. So the state has started their program and they're using Johnson & Johnson um, just because of, it is logistically easier to give one shot than to go out and give two shots. Yeah. So we have um, about 10 more minutes. Do we have any quick, other questions? Um, yeah. Quick comment on that program um, with the pilot and Jane Jane hospital discharges. So that was a collaborative project between the Hospital Association of Virginia and the ACA and leading age chapters along with uh, members of our long-term care task force. And so um, it, we have done this a couple times throughout the pandemic where we've done large-scale projects using the hospital association, ACA chapter and leading age. And uh, it's been successful as, as long as there is you know, shared commonality. I think the initially the hospitals were reluctant when it was a two doses because they weren't sure how they were going to get the second dose. But uh, with a one-time dose, I think they've, they've been very supportive. So. Uh, if there are no other questions, I just would like to say thank you for this time um, and um, this very informative um, presentation and, and all of the work that you're doing. Thank you and thanks to everyone who's on the call. We'll see you in two weeks. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post Acute Care.